Welcome to the DLA Piper Global Compliance and Investigations podcast. In this series, we will discuss market and legal insight and explore the latest trends and challenges facing businesses today and how they must evolve to meet them, both in the short and long term. In each episode, you get the latest views and insights from DLA Piper's leading lawyers. Hello, I'm Adam Vaughan, a partner at DLA Piper in Dubai, and I'm joined today by my colleagues Patrick Rappel, a partner in our London office, and Nana Frimpong, a partner from our DLA Piper practice in the US. As co-chair, along with Patrick, of DLA Piper's Global Compliance and Investigation Team, I'd like to welcome you on behalf of the three of us to this, the first episode in our podcast series. In this episode, we'll give you a high-level overview of some of the key global trends we think you should be aware of. Patrick, kicking off with you, what are some of the trends you've been seeing in the UK and Europe over the last few months that our listeners should be aware of? Thanks, Adam. It's been an incredibly busy time across Europe, obviously. You know, certainly crises such as COVID, issues such as Ukraine, Brexit, all of those things seem to be a a perfect storm sort of swirling around at the minute. And no doubt they'll have a a tail that will last a number of years. But I think one of the major issues is what is the appetite going to be for significant law enforcement? post all of those issues and what is the appetite going to be to really fund it properly to the extent that it has been funded in the past. And I think there is a real pressure globally that there just isn't resource to do this anymore. And really, I think that leads into the question of how do international prosecutors cope with that new paradigm. And I think the way forward, the future really is international cooperation and different agencies working together closer in order, frankly, to get more bang for their buck. And that's not just international prosecutors. And examples of that are obviously the Airbus case, the Rolls-Royce case, Siemens, SNC-Lavalin. We are past examples where international prosecutors have worked together. But I, I think one of the other areas is going to be regulators working together. And again, I think we've seen that with the LIBOR-type cases, the SEC working with the DOJ, SEC working with the FCA in the UK. And I I think there will also be more cooperation between other regulators, such as the World Bank, the international development banks, and so on, because that's the only way that really all of these agencies are going to be able to enforce properly going forward. So I I think that's a couple of those major trends in the short to medium term. And I think also in terms of simply on a UK basis, as opposed to a European or international basis, I think there's going to be a real focus in the UK as to the value for money of the serious fraud office full stop, which is the headline agency that investigates serious crime, fraud, corruption internationally on behalf of the UK. There's an investigation currently going into the conduct of the serious fraud office and its present director, Lisa Osowski, in the Unioil case. The case was thrown out of court by the Court of Appeal in the UK. Significant criticisms were made of the behaviour of the SFO director who 
had effectively dealt with a potential co-defendant, potential suspect in a case, and had reached out and had essentially clandestine conversations with them. There is a review ongoing into the agency, and the upshot of that is likely to be a report within the next three, six, nine months or a year, which could effectively decide whether the agency continues to exist at all or continues to exist in a different format. And I think finally, just in terms of the UK angle, there is currently post the Russia-Ukraine conflict, there are real efforts being made by government to introduce new legislation in relation to money laundering with oligarchs placing illicit funds within the UK, asset recovery, and an economic crime bill is being rushed through Parliament as we speak. I think that's not just a UK issue. I think there will be changes across Europe in relation to corporate criminal liability and also failure to prevent criminal offences such as bribery, such as fraud and so on. And I think settlements, DPA settlements are again another trend that is going to be happening across the UK and Europe because they're a quick, easy cost-effective way to resolve cases. So that's really an overview from me on the UK and European side, unless you've got any sort of additional questions you want to lob my way. Adam, I'll hand back to you. Yeah, thanks for that. That's an excellent sort of overview, Patrick, of the things you're seeing coming over the horizon. You mentioned briefly there the issue of COVID. Is that something that you've seen already coming to fruition in terms of inquiries from clients and and matters that you're working on already? Well, absolutely. And I think there's been a real shift in who are the enforcers, because previously it was the SFO and FCA were the big dogs in the enforcement landscape. But during COVID and afterwards, their enforcement teeth were really blunted in many ways because they just didn't adapt fantastically well. Post-COVID, after the government having handed out an absolute shed load of money to businesses everywhere, which has frankly been defrauded and uh, there have been resignations from the UK government because of the lack of action that's been taken against that fraud, what we have seen as a firm is a massive uptick in tax investigations. So HMRC, which is the UK tax collector, has been going out effectively pressing companies to find out what they have in fact been doing in terms of their tax returns to see if the government can recoup monies that way. So not necessarily recouping the COVID fraud monies, but recouping monies from another source. And I think there have been attempts to try and recoup those COVID fraud monies as well. And I think those two tails, getting more tax revenue in and trying to recover some of those COVID fraud cases are certainly two things that we've seen lots of activity happening in relation to both. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I'll touch on that tax piece maybe briefly from from my perspective, because not in the same context, not in a COVID context, but the rise of investigations related to tax revenue is something that I've definitely seen across the Middle East. And it's been driven for perhaps slightly different reasons, but ultimately they boil down to the the same point, which is that governments are short of cash and they're looking at ways to recoup revenue. And that's certainly something we've seen, particularly across Saudi Arabia and the UAE. On those issues that we just talked about there, Nana, from a, a US perspective, do any of those resonate with you from uh, from across the pond? Yes, they do. I have not personally seen an increase in tax investigations. That's not particularly a space I work in. But I think something that was very interesting in what Patrick was sharing is sort of the linkage between the inflush of cash that we've seen all during the pandemic that you know, many institutions in various countries around the world to try to shore up the economies as we were all faced with the shutdowns and so forth of COVID-19. 
typically, whenever there has been that type of infusion of cash, what has followed has been significant uptake in enforcement activity. So I think that's an expectation broadly within the industry in the way that following the money will come the enforcement actions. And so that's something that we're waiting to see. I think there has been some indications already that some of these investigations, either by inspector generals and so forth, the CARE Act, which is what was passed here in the U.S., that allowed a lot of small to medium-sized companies to access to loans and so forth, may have resulted already in some concerns about fraud in that capacity. And it's actually a good segue, Adam, to, I think, a broader trend that we see here in the U.S., which is that really throughout the pandemic, there was a significant decline in white-collar enforcement across the board. And that was including with respect to the U.S. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, the FCPA. So really one key trend to highlight and from the U.S. side is this anticipated increase in white collar activity. So, for example, just to share a few statistics, corporate resolutions of FCPA actions dropped from 21 in 2019 to 11 in 2020 and then to a paltry six in 2021 which is really the lowest level we've seen since 2015. Well, an interesting thing, Nana, there just on the UK side is that last year, after a Freedom of Information request of the SFO, it was disclosed that they had not conducted a single search. So I think it was probably the first, first year, in my knowledge, that that has ever happened, which is staggering. And I think it aligns with what you're saying, although possibly it sounds as if you're about to say that enforcement's about to pick up. We're not quite sure if that's going to happen in the UK. But anyway, back to you. Sorry for the interruption. No, not at all. I mean, I, obviously, we're not facing that existential crisis, which you outline with the SFO. But I think the expectation, both because of pronouncements the DOJ officials have made, as well as, you know, the initial point I made on things like the CARES Act and so forth, that there's an expectation that robust enforcement is going to actually occur in 2022. They've even referenced the fact that there are a number of investigations in the pipeline. This is DOJ officials. Just continuing this thread, increased enforcement and, and the likelihood of that. Another key trend is just significant activity on the part of the new Biden administration, They've devoted time and resources to financial fraud and transnational corruption in particular. You all may have heard in June of 2021, President Biden issued a memorandum essentially for the first time in U.S. history, elevating anti-corruption to a core national security interest. So that kicked into gear what is known as an interagency process well across Numerous U.S. agencies, they work through a six-month process to come up with what is now recently released in December, a comprehensive approach by all agencies of the U.S. government to work in a coordinated fashion, both domestically and with their international counterparts to combat corruption. So this is a good complement to some of the comments I think, Patrick, you made at the outset about sort of international cooperation. This is something that's anticipated with this new process. You know, a couple of things just wanted to point out with respect to that process. There are five pillars that the Biden administration has outlined. The first being modernizing and coordinating, resourcing U.S. government efforts to fight corruption. Second being curbing illicit finance. 
Third being holding corrupt actors accountable, because sometimes the sense that that's just not actually a key focus of some of the anti-corruption efforts thus far. Preserving and strengthening the multilateral anti-corruption architecture. So again, underscoring that point of multi-jurisdictional cooperation going forward. And last, really improving diplomatic engagement on this front and leveraging, you know, sort of foreign assistance resources to advance these broader policy goals. Another key focus of the administration is respect to the role of FinCEN and proposed rulemaking that FinCEN has in the pipeline. So two, just to highlight for our listeners, and FinCEN, by the way, right, is the Financial Crimes and Enforcement Network Bureau of the Department of Treasury. Two proposed rulemaking provisions. The first is an anti-money laundering requirements that will apply to all real estate transactions in the U.S. Thus far, you can engage in an all-cash, excuse me, real estate transaction that is not tracked in any fashion. As you can imagine, that's a a pretty hefty loophole for anti, excuse me, money laundering efforts or anti-money laundering efforts. A second is there hasn't been a requirement thus far for both domestic and foreign entities, including corporations or you know LLCs within the U.S., registered within the U.S. to actually provide beneficial ownership information, unlike in the U.K. and, and I think in other jurisdictions, with, uh, I think much more robust on the beneficial ownership disclosure requirements. So this is, again, another proposed role Then the expectation is within the next year or so, um, the comment period will be closed on that. And, you know, we may move into a space where that's actually governing regulation. So just to close out on, I think, the key trends to be expecting in the U.S., another area, you know, so beyond the Biden administration efforts and so forth that we've talked about is the increased role of the CFTC in in commodities trading companies. It's just an industry that has long been the focus of U.S. enforcement authorities. But in the last couple of years, the CFTC has been collaborating more with other agencies. In fact, the most recent appointee by the Biden administration to as SEC commissioner, Gary Gensler, previously was CFTC chair. And I think all the indicators suggest that there's probably going to be increased enforcement activity for commodities trading firms going forward. And really the last, I think, trend that I would then highlight just from the U.S. perspective just continues to be third-party actors. That is just a continued risk across the board, across industries, always a red flag, particularly in these, you know, sort of anti-corruption enforcement. Yeah. So turning back to you, Adam. I don't think that's going to change anywhere. I think that's definitely a trend that we see across the globe. And, you know, those themes that you pulled out there, Nana, a lot of them are obviously driven by domestic policy, but a number of them have a truly international flavor. And I think that's something that I pick up from what you're saying there. Obviously, you know, we do a lot of work, which is truly global, just the nature of DLA's business. And I think so much of what you're saying there from a US perspective will have a wider implication for people doing business, you know, truly around the world. Yeah, and certainly on the AML side and that property piece that you mentioned, man, is something very much that we see in the UK, as I talked about the sort of Russian oligarch position and the recent UK legislation in relation to that. You've mentioned the register of beneficial ownership in order to make due diligence on companies a lot easier and more independent and quicker to do. And I think those attempts to effectively repatriate assets, properties, and to make sure that they don't end up in the wrong hands 
plans and don't end up being funded by illicit proceeds of crime is something which has very much been on the agenda in the UK for a long period of time and has been heightened over the last number of months as well. But anyway, Adam, over to you in terms of the trends that you're seeing um, in your region and what you can tell us sort of chimes in with what uh, we've been discussing already. Yeah, one of those things being based where I am sort of halfway between east and west in Dubai, we tend to see a mix of issues. Most of them tend to focus on the way that international clients are trying to navigate the risk and compliance landscape across essentially the developing markets of the Middle East and Africa to a large extent. Middle East, obviously, because I've been based here permanently since 2009, and we can use our offices all across the region to provide guidance and advice on those issues. But more broadly across the Middle East, I think one of the main changes that I've seen in the enforcement, but also the regulatory and legislative landscape, has been the changes around sort of more active enforcement. But frankly, this is still a, an evolving situation and it differs across jurisdictions. People talk about the Middle East, but you know what do they actually mean? I think if you're looking at the, the larger, more developed economies of Saudi Arabia or the UAE, then they tend to be at the forefront in terms of the introduction of more stringent legislation and, and regulation and, you know, frankly, enforcement of the same. Particularly in recent years, and there's been a real driver in the last year or so in the anti-money laundering, the AML space, which chimes in with what you've just been saying, Patrick and, and Nana. And that's something that I think there was a perception that this part of the world was perhaps needing to improve on. There were a couple of less than positive FATF reports in terms of the AML structures and in recognition of that, the governments have stepped up, they've changed things, they've introduced uh, not just policies, but actually are actively putting them into place and they're requiring companies to improve their game when it comes to AML. So that's been a big change. There's also been quite a lot of changes in the anti-bribery space. Examples would be the introduction of changes in legislation to expand the scope of ABC legislation into the private sector and also to make the various domestic legislation applicable extraterritorially. They've probably been the big two changes that I've seen, particularly in Saudi Arabia and the UAE, but other nations across the region are following suit in that regard. I think the other trend is that point around Africa. We've seen a trend in relation to African-related issues, and we see quite a lot of that here in the Middle East, primarily because of the great transport links, but also because of the fact that a lot of the legal functions for international clients that cover Africa are, are based in Dubai. So we've seen a significant increase in requests from clients on that. And we've tended to deal with that in conjunction with our offices, whether it's Francophone Africa or, or whether it's the English-speaking parts of Africa with the relevant offices around the network as to who needs input. But the main things that we've tended to see from Africa hasn't been that level of perhaps sophistication that we were talking about there from the US or the, the UK perspective. It's been the things that you'd expect from international businesses. It's been risk advice around market entry, related concerns about those third party issues that you were mentioning, Nana, third party due diligence or thinking about who I go into business with. And then the second one would probably be issues around the customs and logistics. A lot of those are frankly corruption related issues. And then the third big one on the African side would be resolving any issues that companies have with regard to suppliers or distributors or agents and a lot of the internal fraud type stuff, which you tend to get, frankly, in all developing markets. And it's another big feature of the work we tend to see in this part of the world. The African piece for DLA is obviously a big advantage for us because having more than 20 offices across the continent means that we can usually help people wherever they need assistance. And that's been 
a significant part of the African piece from what we are seeing. I haven't and, talked about Asia Pacific at all, Patrick. Sorry, do you want to ask a question? No, I, I was just going to say, Adam, and just before you go on to the Asia Pacific side of things, just in terms of enforcement, you've mentioned the legal changes in the Middle East, particularly in relation to bribery and corruption, and, and that's been going on for a number of years in terms of, you know, whether there's been an uptick in levels of interest and levels of enforcement potentially. Has that manifested itself? Are you seeing the enforcement following through from these legal changes, or are they still what the Bribery Act used to be called in the UK, which is a kind of paper tiger. You know, it looks pretty tough on paper, but actually has got absolutely zero teeth behind it. Yeah, the honest answer is it's difficult to say. And the reason it's difficult to say is because the information that comes into our domain tends to come from anecdotal evidence and then the pieces of information that the various governments put out. And the information that's put out publicly by governments isn't as widespread as it is in other more developed parts in the world. You, know, you don't have publications of judgments. You don't have detailed analysis of investigation that's debated in the public domain about whether there's been success or failings on the part of the regulators and the, the enforcement authorities. But what you do have is, once you start looking through the, the press, you do have more examples of the governments putting out information where they have been successful, where they have carried out raids, where they have prosecuted. And that, as a, a general trend, is something that, from my perspective, is an indication that enforcement definitely is happening. Is it happening on the scale that we would want it to happen? Probably not. But all the indications are that everything's moving in the right direction with regard to enforcement. And I think the other thing that you don't see sort of published in terms of stats or data in this part of the world is that number of cases or interaction with other enforcement agencies. But we know that the enforcement agencies and the investigation agencies in this part of the world are liaising with enforcement and investigation agencies in other parts of the world. That is happening. And so I can only expect an upward trajectory in, in that sort of enforcement landscape, as it were, going forward. No, it's interesting to hear you say that from the Middle Eastern perspective, and I'm sure Nana will have uh, stuff to add in relation to that as well. But certainly in terms of Africa, I've noticed that with a lot of UK cases, the British American Tobacco's case had a lot of assistance from a number of African jurisdictions, a number of other SFO investigations that have been ongoing for a while have had a lot of international cooperation there. So there may not be enforcement in some of those African jurisdictions, but there is certainly a lot of international cooperation going on underneath the kind of prosecution tidal waves which are happening above the ground. But anyway, I'll, I'll shut up and hand back to, um, to you and Anna. Thanks, Patrick. I was just going to touch very briefly on Asia Pacific. It's not an area that I cover and I won't attempt to go into all of the trends or, or, or frankly many of them in the time that we've had because you know I don't have that knowledge. And Those that are based in our offices across Southeast Asia, China, Hong Kong, Japan, Australia, New Zealand are the people that will be able to assist. But I'll just perhaps mention one significant trend that I know we're seeing because clients have been approaching us for advice in relation to these issues that they're facing in China. And I know that because I was having a conversation recently with our partner in China, Sammy Fang, and he mentioned two interrelated things, I think. It's essentially the challenges around document production, data transfer out of China in cross-border investigations under a new data security law. And then it's the fact that there have been a number of investigations and compliance reviews by the Chinese authorities in relation to cyber fraud and data security breaches. You know, they're two pretty significant developments that we're seeing across China. And I think that the Chinese market is something that's going to be very important for, well, certainly for, for us, but I would suspect for 
all firms, international firms that are operating in China and all companies that are operating across the Asian market. There's a lot of changes there in China that people will need to be aware of and will need to learn to live with going forward. So I think they're the two main trends that I'd say from the Asia Pacific region. You know, one thing, Adam, that I thought worth adding and the comment that you were sharing about some of these developments in Asia-Pac region just reminded me of this, which is really on the U.S. side, I think because of all this additional activity by the Biden administration across agencies that I referenced earlier, really a concern on the part of us who provide services, legal advice to government contractors, so U.S. government contractors working with subcontractors in different countries, including within Africa, which is obviously an area that there is particular risk for some of the reasons you outlined before, as well as obviously in the Asia Pacific region or other emerging market areas where there could be heightened FCPA risk and so forth. And so that's just another area to really highlight for clients who are in the particular intersection where they are providing services to the U.S. government, that there's likely to be additional scrutiny of them if their subcontractors or other sort of tentacles reach into some of these other areas. Yeah, it's a minefield. We've touched on so many themes today, and this is an introduction, and we're going to, during this podcast series, unpack the various themes. Well, those we've discussed today, but a, a whole host of other themes. We'll be talking to a number of our global compliance and investigation partners across the globe, And the types of issues that we're going to be talking about that could be impacting our business include key issues in ESG and compliance, the development of whistleblowing programs, modern slavery risks and mitigation strategies, corruption in the procurement process, the ever-present threat of dawn raids, and a whole bunch more. And if you've got any suggestions of things you'd like us to talk about or anything that we've talked about today um, sparks a chord in in your brain and you want to discuss them, please do let us know and uh, we'll be happy to talk to you. Thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you for listening to the DLA Piper Global Compliance and Investigations podcast. Subscribe now through your usual podcast provider so you don't miss an episode. Thank you and we look forward to you joining us in the future.